It's never been done before. So I need planning and large crew. Guns? Exactly. A lot of security. But the take? What's the target? Eight figures each. What's the target? When was the last time you were in Vegas? Welcome to the now-playing Ocean's Movie Retrospective Series. Why do this? Why not do it? When that perfect hand comes along, you bet big, and then you take the house. That's why we have to be very careful, very precise. You gotta be nuts, too. And you're gonna need a crew as nuts as you are. Who do you got in mind? Hosted by Arnie. I owe you from the thing with the guy in the place, and I'll never forget it. Jacob. Well, it's on the list. He is the list. You think we need one more? You think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more. And Stuart. It'd be nice working with proper villains again. But what am I saying? You guys are pros. The best. I'm sure you can make it out of the casino. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're in or you're out. Right now. Listener discretion is advised. So are you sure you're ready to do this? If you ever ask me that question again, Daniel, you will not wake up the following morning. Today we're discussing Ocean's Eleven, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Don Cheadle, Bernie Mac, Scott Kahn, Casey Affleck, Carl Reiner, Elliot Gould, Eddie Jameson, Andy Garcia, and Julia Roberts, directed by Steven Soderbergh. This is the now playing co-host who certainly was the groom, Arnie. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob, and it's nice to be working with proper villains again. Indeed. Ocean's Eleven, 2001. When it came out, I had no clue it was a remake. (laughs) Steven Soderbergh, man. He is a film scholar. I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about Steven Soderbergh. He doesn't do many franchises. This may be the only film we ever cover, but he did come up when we discussed Insomnia. He's a big film geek and an archivist. And just recently, he recut Raiders of the Lost Ark and released it in black and white. He does all these kinds of cool things with film. It is not surprising to me that he went back to that musty old Rat Pack movie that none of us recommended last week and saw something that could be brought into the mainstream of 2001 with the current Hollywood generation. What he's going to try to do here is make an equivalency between New Hollywood and the Rat Pack of old. And George Clooney and Brad Pitt and Matt Damon, are they comparable? It'll be fun to experiment and see, but Soderbergh is the guy to really do that right. I think that this is the kind of thing that he considers fun. And Soderbergh, I'm not necessarily a fan, but I do admire his work, if that can make sense. I don't always like it, but I think he's very good about what he does. I mean, The Informant, Contagion, Ocean's Eleven, all films I really enjoy. Really? Yeah. The Informant? I did, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, I thought that was a lot of fun, actually. Filmed here in my town. Yes, it was. But then we get things like Out of Sight, Aaron Brockovich. Oh. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> 
I know Traffic was a big deal. Maybe I'd have to revisit that one. I wasn't into Traffic. I like many of his films, but he does so many things. There are so many failed experiments on his resume. I don't even mind them. I just love the fact that he tinkers. And here, I think that, yeah, if anybody were going to take a crack at this, it should be him. And by this point, you mentioned Out of Sight. He had a good working relationship with George Clooney. George Clooney was a TV star from ER who was trying to break into movies and doing it badly, as Batman and Robin can attest. (laughs) And Soderbergh changed that for him. Working together, suddenly Clooney was an A-lister. And so... He can be the Frank Sinatra to lead this new crew. Technically speaking, I think Brad Pitt and Matt Damon are bigger deals, but Clooney has the moxie to hold them all together. Yeah, I was trying to figure out where Clooney was at this time, because I think they did this now. Yes, it's definitely the go-to person, but I I guess he wasn't quite the star. He was just emerging at the time of Ocean's Eleven as a leading, a mainstream leading man. I really paid attention to him after From Dusk Till Dawn. I I wasn't even watching (laughs) ER until I saw From Dusk Till Dawn, and then I started watching ER. And then Out of Sight, I didn't like it. I really feel like where he broke through was Three Kings. That was like the movie where he started getting critical notice. Then Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was good. And then this movie. But yeah, now I look back at Ocean's Eleven and I go, oh yeah, Clooney. He's one of those old Hollywood types in New Hollywood. You know, he really feels of a different era in today's Hollywood society. But It's almost retroactive, like he became that out of Ocean's Eleven instead of being that, and that's why he was in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, it helps that he played old-timey people like Oh Brother, Where Art There, where he looks like Clark Gable. I I do think that's some of it. But he does seem to be one of the few movie stars that seems to enjoy being a movie star. You know what I mean? Like, I actually think that he likes the cameras. I think he likes bringing his politics out into the open. I think he likes the jets and the boats in the Italian villas. And I also think he likes making important, challenging, meaty Hollywood movies, too. Now, I've mentioned before that I've seen Ocean's Eleven and that I'm a big fan of Steven Soderbergh, but this wasn't an event for me. I didn't go to the theater to see this. I know I saw it at some point on its home video release, but it really made no impression. And when I rewatched it for this viewing, I realized half of my thoughts about it were actually for that Mark Wahlberg movie, The Italian Job. I thought there was, <laughs> I thought there was going to be Mini Coopers in this. I honestly had gotten them confused. Oh, that movie is so awful. And oh my God, Edward Norton, it's as worst performance ever (laughs) it is yeah but around this time there seemed to be more heist movies i mean when i went to see this i saw this in theaters not opening weekend i was home from college for christmas but it was a sold out showing around that time but i was going in here with a guy ricci mind frame you know snatch and lock stock and two smoking barrels like Ah, those had come out previously so i was hyped up for a good heist movie it seems like around this time at least maybe i was just paying more attention to him because of ricci's films and i was there opening weekend and i think it was primarily due to the cast Clooney I had been watching in films at that point for five years Matt Damon Brad Pitt I mean Brad Pitt was somebody who had been a star for over a decade but I never liked him until seven Legends of the Fall all these other movies Interview with a Vampire just did not like him seven made me start to like him Fight Club made me love him and so seeing the trailer seeing the quips all of that really this became a must-see movie for me and so yeah we went opening weekend to see it and we'll talk about what we saw yeah already get them the plot we kind of already covered it last week but let's see if they found more of a plot this time we can get into it 
Unlike so many remakes, though, it felt like I had to totally rewrite the plot summary. This was not a cut and paste job. Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney, is a con man in prison for confidence schemes. He's released on parole and immediately starts to get a new crew together for a major job. Rob three casinos in Las Vegas, the Mirage, the MGM Grand, and the Bellagio. All three casinos are owned by the same man, Terry Benedict, played by Andy Garcia, and they keep their cash in the Bellagio vault. So it's kind of a technicality. It really is. They're robbing one casino. <laughs> that was confusing at first. I'm like, three? Wait, it's all in the Bellagio. Ocean approaches his friend and fellow con man, Rusty Ryan, played by Brad Pitt, and they figure out the full crew needed for the job. But to pull it off, they'll need a rich man to bankroll the gig, so they approach Ruben Tishkoff, played by Elliot Gould. Ruben dismisses the idea as ridiculous until he finds out they're only robbing Benedict's casinos, and Benedict torpedoed Ruben's chance at owning a Vegas casino. With Ruben on board, they need nine more people. First, to cause a power outage in all of Vegas, they need a munitions expert. So they get Basher Tar, played by Don Cheadle. To hack the Bellagio security systems, they bring in Livingston Dell, played by Eddie Jemison. Bernie Mac plays their friend Frank Catton, who's already an ex-con working as a blackjack dealer in Atlantic City. Might as well call it White Jack. <laughs> so they position him in the Bellagio to gather information and cause a distraction. As drivers and legmen, as well as doing some robotics work, they hire the Malloy twins, Turk and Virgil, played by Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck, respectively. Are they twins, really? They call them the Mormon twins. Oh, okay. To actually get in the safe and open the door without touching the floor, they hire the Amazing Yen, a Chinese acrobat. And then they bring in experienced con man Saul Bloom, played by Carl Reiner, as well as a new member of the crew, Linus Caldwell, a pickpocket and con man played by Matt Damon. The actual implementation of the scheme is highly intricate. I'm sure we're going to go into it. But during the prep, Linus and Russ discover that Danny had an ulterior motive. His newly divorced wife, Tess, played by Julia Roberts, is now with Benedict and has no interest in her ex-con ex-husband. Danny has another scheme, to steal not only Benedict's money, but his girl. Sure enough, when the gang disappears with $160 million from the Bellagio, Danny asks Benedict if he'd give up Tess to get the money back, a deal to which Benedict quickly agrees, while Tess watches on from a television provided by Hacker Livingston. The group escapes, and while Benedict strongly suspects Ocean was involved, he can't figure out how as he had locked Ocean in a room for the entire heist. He turns Ocean in for violating his parole by leaving the state, but three to six months later, Ocean is again released from prison to find Russ waiting with Tess, who again realizes how much she loves Danny and Danny loves her. But they're being followed by some of Benedict's goons as credits roll. So this time, it's Danny Ocean, the star, actually coming out of prison. His very first scene, it's his parole hearing. This is what I said last time, right? Why did they give all of the drama stuff to the no-namer? The star should have this storyline. Yeah, even furthermore, he's going to have motivation to pull this heist. We complained about that last week. We're like, why are they doing this? It's going to come later in the film. But yeah, people have reasons to want to pull this heist. I, a lot of these characters, we're not going to get in backstories for all of them, but yeah. Danny Ocean has a plan, and he's the one putting together this team. I have a question. You know, when they give him his clothes back and release him and all that, it's a tuxedo, and he's also given his wedding ring. And he claims that the reason why he did the one crime that got him convicted, he's been implicated in dozens, but they only nailed him on one crime. We don't really know what that was. Was it on his wedding night? 
I don't think so. I It seems like maybe they'd been married a while, that she got divorced while he was in jail. It'd been, what, five years. I didn't take it that it was on his wedding night, but that was the thing that caused him to lose his cool. It, nice foreshadowing that yeah. his wife is going to be the one that makes this personal. Yeah, normally I'd hate that. I'd say, what a contrived plot. But yeah, I love that they set up the wife here in the very first scene, and Julia's not going to appear for 40 more minutes. And in fact, he says that the reason he committed the crime is because his wife left him. So he obviously was married at that point. Yeah, but I mean, did she leave him and he literally went and committed the crime? I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny to imagine what could get him caught. He didn't get married and then she leaved him immediately and still in the tux is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. They're a combustible couple. It would be fun to know these these two. But it, it takes him going and we're going to meet all of his other friends first. He is asked by this parole hearing, what is it that you hope to do if you're released? We see him next up, like in a suit, shaven at the tables. I think, ah, he's a gambler. He's going to blow his money. This is what gets him in trouble is he takes high risks. But he's really there to shake down Bernie Mac and see if he wants to play ball. Yeah, it's weird to me that this entire movie, and re-watching it, I remembered, Ocean's right-hand man is Russ, played by Brad Pitt. So... My memory was incorrect. It's a scene that comes at the end of the film instead of the beginning. I thought he walked out of prison to find Russ there. So that he goes to see Bernie Mac as Frank Catton, a very minor character who has some memorable scenes, but isn't exactly integral. Seems strange that he was stop number one. You got to go to Frank to find out where Russ was. And Frank is in New Jersey. I mean, Danny's not supposed to be leaving Jersey. This takes place in Atlantic City. Russ is out in Hollywood. So it makes a little bit of sense that he's going around putting the old team together. I remember Brad Pitt being in this movie, of course. He's just as big a star as Clooney. I'd forgotten about Bernie Mac, and I liked Bernie Mac. I did actually watch his sitcom. I miss him. He's no longer with us. I think he would be a fun presence in today's comedies. He is in a small part here, but I enjoy every scene he's here. Agreed. I love Bernie Mac. We talked a little bit about him when we did Transformers. Oh, God. He was probably the top part of that first Transformers film for me. <laughs> I forgot that. That's right. In, in another car dealership scene. <laughs> yeah. That's... Not quite as good. I think this movie was the one that really put him on my map. But all the stuff after that, especially Bad Santa, I'm just a fan of Bernie Mac. What I'm going to credit this film with, last week, th there was all these players. I didn't know who they were. I wasn't sure what they were doing. I guess they were spray painting doors, whatnot. <laughs> no matter how small the role the character has with Ocean's group, I remember him. Bernie Mac doesn't have a whole lot to do in this film, but I remember all his scenes. They're all memorable. They make him count. Yeah, the car dealership scene and, of course, the one that Stuart already quoted about the white jack at the end is probably his best scene of the movie where he's found out and has to confront being a convict who's dealing cards. Yeah, basically he's a distraction, is that he's largely going to be planted at the Bellagio. He's working Atlantic City, but he's going to be planted at the Bellagio so that at the right moment they can unearth his horrible convict past, and the casino will have to be dealing with that while they're planning their other heist. Again, a small part, but unlike the last time, every player in this is not small time. You like this whole crew. I mean, as we keep going here, yeah, next up is Brad Pitt, someone that's hit or miss for me. I tend to think that he's best when he's in a likable role, showing some magnetism. I tend to not like his more gruff, dramatic turns. But yeah, this is perfect for him when we see him... Is he trying to train Hollywood douches or, or 
yes, these are actors who are trying to learn how to play cards for a role. And okay, in the commentary, it's funny because Brad Pitt's there with Matt Damon, and Matt Damon's like, this hit a little too close to home as I was one of those actors when I was preparing for <laughs> rounders. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of the comedy holds up in this film, but this is dated. I mean, the, the celebrities they have here seem very like late 90s, Josh Jackson from Dawson's Creek and Topher Grace. I guess he's still around, but that 70s show was going. It seemed like a WB reunion, yes. except for Topher Grace, <laughs> who somehow got over there from that 70s show, because I was like, I'm trying to figure them all out. I'm like, okay, Holly Marie Combs, she was on Charm. Topher Grace, that 70s show. Josh Jackson, Mighty Ducks. Uh, <laughs> Dawson's Creek, come on. Well, yes, I wasn't going to admit I watched that show. <laughs> I just know that he was on it. I never watched it. I swear. I, I really, I mean, I knew Josh Jackson before that show. But then the other two, there's somebody they call Bear. I had to look him up. Barry Watson from Seventh Heaven. And then some guy I thought might have been Ian Summerholder, but it was Shame West from who? I don't know. <laughs> a walker to remember, yeah. I think the point is, if they were going to find a Rat Pack comparative with today's young Hollywood, this is as good as it gets. I think Soderbergh's <laughs> making a joke at their expense. That this is the Rat Pack of the 2000 millennia, and boy, is it not pretty. I think they're in on the joke. They have a good time when Topher's like, look, all red. They get that they're being laughed at. But I, what I like here is with Brad Pitt, again... What's his motivation? They don't have to tell me a whole lot. He's bored. He hates this. This is not what he wants to be doing is teaching these stupid celebrities how to play poker. He wants to be back in the game. And so when Clooney shows up, you know, that's his chance. And I, I again, I like that there are motivations here and that they don't hit us over the head. It's they make this scene. It's funny, but it also plays into the plot. Well, I like a lot about this scene and how it conveys information. It infers that the reason Ocean got sent up is because he stole some tribal masks that would be worth a lot of money. Is that what landed him in jail? I was trying to figure out if that's what the crime was that he finally got caught for. They're matrimonial tribal masks. So again, I thought that this might be code for speaking about his marriage. I just, I didn't know what it meant, but I love that it's this mystery we never find out. I also love that he just infiltrates the game when Brad Pitt's out having a drink and fucking with the bartender. He comes back, Clooney's there, and then they immediately go into their routine and scam these Hollywood douchebags out of $10,000. But what I like watching it as a viewer, you don't know, is is there contention between them or are they doing a bluff? You get it by the end, but I like that. There's some drama there too. You don't know if they're on the best of terms right away. Yeah. And one of the things they established very early on is that Danny Ocean knows how to pay people off. When he's trying to woo and get Brad Pitt to come to his side, I think he'd be willing to anyway. I mean, look at his day job. But they go into what I presume is an architecture firm and look at the blueprints for the vault that they're going to hire. He's already paying people off. The night security guard is on the payroll. And so we're going to see that time and time again. Every time we think a security figure is going to get one over on Danny, you realize Danny's one step ahead. Yeah, I did note that this should really be like Ocean's 15 or 16. There's some extra people around. Lots of But there were in the last one, too. I mean, they didn't count the planner and the planner's aide. I think Bruiser at the end deserves an equal cut. He's integral to this plot. Should we count Ruben? Because he is kind of like Spiros, the Greek, last time. All he's really doing is footing the bill and kind of hanging out by the pool while everyone else does the grunt work. But Elliot Gould is going to be the money man. 
He's along for the whole ride, though. He goes to Vegas. He doesn't just sit at his house and write checks. And so he's definitely considered one of the 11. And I mean, come on, this guy is got such a career behind him and so entrenched in Hollywood. I love seeing him here. I found it really funny that he was on the 80s sitcom ER and then Clooney was on the 90s drama ER. Yeah, I remember dinging Elliot Gould in the television version of The Shining. Who Here, didn't again, we ding in the television version <laughs> of The Shining? We very grabbed the, true. We grabbed the croquet mallet and went to town. <laughs> but again, I, maybe it's it's the environment that Sonnenberg is getting everyone to vibe and, and, and just have this chill party sense to it. He's very relaxed, very comfortable. Everyone's likable for the most part here and and everyone seems to be having fun but it's not pranks it's not improv but there's something in their acting that tells you yeah i want to go along with this ride actually it is a lot of improv but more than likability you know what this thing has charisma and i think that's slightly different you not only like them but you're captivated by them and the way Soderbergh has filmed and edited this first hour of this movie, or at least the first 45 minutes, it's almost all a montage, you know? And it's reminding me in some degree of Fight Club and some of those movies because we got to introduce so many characters. We have to introduce really 13 characters in 45 minutes. And so the music is playing. It's got Elvis's A Little Less Conversation, a song I'd never heard until that dance remix came out in 2001. And I'm not an Elvis fan. Love that version of that song. Just the whole vibe that's going on of this movie. These actors, their lines, their presence, and this editing, it's just sucking me in. I'm just along for the ride and enjoying every minute of it. Yeah, and I said I had Guy Ritchie in mind when I went to go see this. Those Snatch and Lock Stock have that similar feeling and just very quick and charismatic and you're just hanging on every word probably because they're Cockney accents. You can't understand them. But I got a similar vibe from this. I was going along and yeah, you're right. It's the charisma and I'm enjoying this group. I'm also going to praise the screenplay though. I don't know Ted Griffith's other work. I didn't see Matchstick Men. I hear good things. Tower Heist, I missed. I heard great things about his TV show Terrier, short-lived. But keep missing Tower Heist. That was a disappointment, and I'm a Heist fan. Terriers was good. Matchstick Men, eh, wouldn't bother. All I'm saying is, based solely on this script, I think this is really clever plotting. Not only clever in the one-liners, which are just as fast and furious as in the original movie, but just scene by scene, you're learning so much information. Yeah, these stars are, have charisma, and they know what to do with it when they got gold, but they're also given really good material here. What I love about Ruben's scene is we're now learning a lot about Terry Benedict, the villain, Andy Garcia here. This is where it's established. Up to this point, all we've seen is that Andy Garcia has been in a newspaper clip and that for reasons unknown, George Clooney hates him. But here we actually learn that he dicked over Elliot Gould, took away his casino, and is now going to push the plunger and blow that casino up. We're to hate Andy Garcia, not only because he's ruthless, but because he's destroying old Vegas. He's taking that old classic Rat Pack era casino image and obliterating it. He's turning it into the Disney-fied family place. And that's that's kind of what makes him a villain. I also like, though, during this Ruben scene that he points out how impossible the task is. And they have the three closest 
heists in Vegas history. I think it would have been fun if one of them would have been the original Ocean's crew, really. I was watching the 60s version to see if one of these would play into that. I was disappointed they didn't. Yeah, if it was like, in the 60s, they tried to use a garbage man, you know, something like that. But the fact that they used period music, just completely stereotypical outfits, the guy in the 80s is dressed like Don Johnson with the shirt and the white sport coat. I mean, it's just a lot of fun, but also setting us up that what you're doing is dangerous. And the guy in the 80s, the number one guy who actually got out, died in it. It sets up danger, but in a fun way. I mean, it's really reinforcing what I said last week. Vegas casinos are all about security and cameras and that. And that's going to play a big part in the rest of this movie. Yeah, I love how they amp up Andy Garcia's character too, Terry Benedict, you know, with the danger. This is a guy, you try to rob his casino, he's not only going to throw you in jail, he's going to bankrupt your brother-in-law's business. Like, this is a ruthless, you know, mobster almost. And He'll kill you, then he'll go to work on you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like that there's dangers, that there's stakes here. And he feels like the evil George Clooney. I mean, I do feel like he has some of that same kind of moxie. Like, you'd consider casting Andy Garcia in the same role you would George Clooney, except that he's just not as likable. Like, he just didn't have the same success in his career. So, it seems like a good foil. People feel evenly matched here. What's a surprise to me is Matt Damon is the other big luminary in this, but he's the afterthought. He is really the 11th. They have 10 good people. They run down everything that they need from a bomb expert to a techie. Matt Damon's character, why do they go with an 11th one? They don't need him. No, they do. They need someone that's going to be able to get these codes. We find out the codes. They change every 12 hours. There's like six of them. Someone's got to be able to get these codes from Benedict. They need a pickpocket. Okay. I guess, yes. I'm thinking later in the elevator, busting into the vault, that was supposed to be Danny Ocean's job. They trick him into thinking that he's going to take over those responsibilities when really they're just testing to see if they can trust him. Nobody has vetted this guy yet. They're bringing in somebody that they don't know if they're going to play well together. And I do like that. They Throughout this movie, we're not to know whether Matt Damon is one of the crew or not. Yeah, they keep talking about his dad. He's not allowed to even use the family name. He has to make his own name for himself. So there's a little bit of a backstory. I I don't know if anything really comes of that. But yeah, I think we're supposed to not be so sure of him. He gets some memorable scenes, but doesn't really have much of an arc. I mean, when they're all getting together, he seems hesitant about going inside and he has to be pressured into going in. He kind of drops a few lines like he has something to prove about his dad. But in such a packed film, the character of Linus is one of the lesser ones. I mean, there's still some even less than him, but that's why you get Matt Damon. And why does Matt Damon do this role? Steven Soderbergh. Everybody wants to work with Steven Soderbergh around this time and still do, although he's mostly doing television now. And it was a relationship that paid off. I mean, the two would go on and make several more movies together. I know Damon was in Contagion. Yeah. And the informant, as you mentioned. Yeah. So that's why he, even after winning his writing Oscar for Goodwill Hunting, and after having Ripley, all the stuff he did, Dogma, would 
take up lesser role. Honestly, his best bud at the time, Ben Affleck, would make more sense. We all know that Ben was playing the tables. He's the gambler of the duo, but they get the other Affleck. They get his brother Casey, who I'm actually a huge fan of. Has he ever done anything major? I know he's always got these kind of goofy little side roles, but he's he's always good for uh, comedic effect. He's done some great drama, Assassination of uh, the Coward. I can't even say the whole yeah, title. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking movie. about, yes. Uh, yeah, he was terrific. <laughs> Terrific in that movie. Just fantastic. And in so many little roles, Killer Inside Me, I really appreciated what he's brought here. He's never had his breakout, but I keep hoping it. And it's not here. Let me tell you, he's partnered <laughs> with Scott Kahn. We, we forget about these guys. They're mostly gophers, but they're still fun. Yeah, what I liked about them is they were both people I recognized. Casey Affleck, I knew I had seen him in a lot of movies, mostly, you know, like he was in Goodwill Hunting with his brother and he was in Kevin Smith movies with his brother. And then Scott Kahn, I'd seen him in like Gone in 60 Seconds. And so these were faces. They weren't stars, but I was feeling familiarity with them. And definitely with Bash, with Don Cheadle. I mean, Don Cheadle at this point wasn't much in the way of a movie star, but I loved Picket Fences. He thought he was because he's uncredited in this because they wouldn't put his name on the poster. Really? Yeah, he wanted to be next to Clooney and Pitt, and they're like, no. So he went uncredited in this film. Wow. And yet he still came back for the next two. (laughs) (laughs) But at this point, I don't know that he had done much. He was in traffic, I guess, and out of sight. So he'd worked with Soderbergh, but... I knew him as that guy from Picket Fences and was really happy to see him. A good dramatic actor. I forget that he does comedy. I don't think it's his strong suit. I've seen his TV show on Showtime, and I don't know about Don Cheadle, the comedian, but he can be lighthearted. He's kind of in a Guy Ritchie movie here, right? Yeah, he's doing the Cockney accent. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's not great, but it's still kind of fun. Have either of you seen Hotel Rwanda? No. No. Okay, because I was wondering if his accent in that is as bad as his accent in this, because this is horrendously bad. I just like that he has to explain the whole Cockney accent, how the rhyming works and all that at one point. And he's like, you know, we're we're in Barney. Barney Rubble Trouble. I, again, some good one-liners here. It's funny. Do they really talk like that? I don't know. Yes. No, Cockney accents, you find a rhyme and then you use a different word associated with that rhyme. It's a criminal coded language. There's a lot to chew on in this movie. I I actually like his introduction here. He's actually the best part of a very bad team of thieves. He does his job. He blows open the vault. They didn't stop the alarm, so he's going to jail, except Brad Pitt swoops in and pretends to be a cop and whisks him away. It's a fun introduction. And yeah, he's sort of the wild card. I think anytime someone deals with explosives in these kinds of movies, they're always like the dangerous one. They're always the one that you're wondering, when are they going to destroy everything? I'm predicting he's going to create the problems in the gang, but he doesn't. No, he's just a good go-to. He he has really little to do in this movie, but when he does it, he's funny. Like when they're demolishing that building that they talked about that Benedict was going to blow up and Bash is watching it on TV when it's right behind him out the window, but he's enraptured at the television. Yeah, I like that detail. I'd say the last major member of the group is Saul. And I don't know exactly why they need Saul, but it's Carl Reiner, who nobody's ever going to kick out of a movie. I did not know Carl Reiner was in this movie. I certainly would think that he has the least bit of cachet in 2001 to be in a movie like this. 
kind of my favorite character. I don't know that I have a favorite character here, but I really do like what he brings here. He's the only one that isn't hip and cool. He's got ulcers. I'm thinking about the electrician that had cancer or heart problems or whatever the hell was going wrong. I'm wondering if he's going to be the one to drop dead in the streets, whether he does have the stuff to make it. And I think Soderbergh plays with that original movie to make you think that, yeah, maybe Saul isn't up for the task of pretending to be this arms dealer that, again, is here largely for a distraction so that they can focus on their heist while he's flopping on the ground pretending to die. Yeah, Griffin said he was intentionally trying to call back and make us all think he'd die and mess it up just like happened in the original film. It worked. Yeah, that's pretty much the only... reference we get to that original film besides some of the Danny Ocean. But I like Saul because he's this old man. He's got this heart condition. He's got the ulcers. There's a great line where he's eating an orange and he's like, my doctor says I need to take more vitamins. And why don't you take vitamins? But I love the part, you know, where he's trying on that suit and Danny asked him, are you up to this? And he's like, if you ever ask me that again, Daniel, you will not wake up the following morning. Like he's, you could tell that we don't know a whole lot about his backstory, but you could tell he has a history and that he actually is a tough guy. There's a confidence that he portrays, even though he seems like the one that might be a pariah on this group. In coming out of an age of like grumpy old men comedies where like if this were Walter Matthau or Jack Lemmon, I don't know that I'd get that toughness. But I love that Carl Reiner really does sell the idea that he's not going to be considered a joke. He is not going to be the weak link on this team. And so, yeah, my heart goes out to the guy. I really like the fact that he's hanging tough with all the young cats. Yeah, and I like just his affectations his hat and things i mean it does look very old man but he never comes off like he's out of his league you know yep definitely and he is truly you know old hollywood embedded so much and worked for so many years that i think if you're going for a new old hollywood feel having him here just adds a little bit of legitimacy i mean it's not as good as if any of the rat pack actually showed up if any were still alive at this point I don't think that they were. I honestly think they would have invited anyone, even Joey Bishop, they would have stuck in there and treated like a king. But He was the one if I was wondering if he was still alive. I knew Sinatra was gone. I knew <laughs> Sammy Davis was gone. I knew Martin was gone. I just wasn't sure about Bishop. Yeah, all those guys were gone about 10 years prior, so I don't know who they could get. They do get an Angie Dickinson cameo later, but no, they don't have any callbacks to that original crew. And then the last two members of the crew are really the two least important. I mean, they're needed for the plot, but they're actors who you don't know. One I thought I knew, the guy who plays Livingston Dell, Eddie Jemison. When this came on, I'm like, oh, it's that guy. And then it turns out, nope, it's not any guy. It's just Eddie Jameson. I would go on to see him in two different Thomas Jane roles, The Punisher and Hung, but... Ah, that's where I recognized him from. I was going retroactive thinking I'd seen him in stuff before this, but no, it was all after. (laughs) He's got a familiar nerd look. He's going to play that familiar part of, you always need a techie. You always need someone that can click on a keyboard and magic things happen. That's what this is here. Although I do feel like they do a pretty good job of explaining what he's doing. They don't fake it. I mean, largely, they're going to use him to switch out feeds so that they can see what's going on in the Bellagio when they're not in the Bellagio. But I'm glad they went this way with what's basically a hacker role, right? He comes off more of an electrician than a hacker, but keep in mind, 2001, we'd come off the Matrix two years earlier with cool leather-clad hackers. We'd had the movie hackers a few years before that. Nothing cool about that. 
And then they bring in the amazing Yen, an actor who has only worked in the Oceans films, from what I can tell. <laughs> I'm guessing he's a real acrobat. What is a grease man? They call. They say they need a grease man, and he is the list. I'm not a criminal. I don't. I'm not up on this terminology, <laughs> but I just take it to mean that he's someone that can get in between the cracks. He's a contortionist, right? He can fit in the box that's going to get stuffed into the room, and he can jump from objects around in parkour fashion. That's really amusing to watch. Well, in a very circular definition per UrbanDictionary.com, a grease man <laughs> is a guy that can get you in, and that is based upon the movie Ocean's Eleven. So they created the term, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. Or at least Urban Dictionary took their definition from the film. Yes. Hey, uh, yeah, it's so inside that nobody knows about it. But yeah, <laughs> I like this as a character. It's fun. I like the fact that he has no ties to the criminal world, presumably, before this. And yeah, I just love the idea. My favorite detail about the rehearsal of this is that they actually build a replica of the vault so that he can jump around in it and practice seeing whether he can get to the door and blow it up from the inside, right? They're going to put some bombs on the outside, and he's going to put some bombs on the inside, and somehow that's going to blow this impossibly thick vault door. Well, there's a tell, though, because, you know, when you know the whole plot is that they have a dummy safe, and they set the cameras up for the dummy safe. When they're building this, Russ asks Danny, is this so... Yen can practice and Danny just goes something like that and uh, I'm like yes. yeah so I took him at his word but you're right there is uh, another reason well when we get to the end of the film we can talk about it they repurpose a lot of things a lot of what I love about this movie is that they guide you I never feel lost even though there's multiple characters they're all doing things but they have their own secret agendas none more so than Danny Ocean because of course we think he's doing this to get revenge on Andy Garcia but Truly, once we see that Julia Roberts is in the picture, and I had totally forgotten about her being in this, we know that this has to be the real reason, right? Julia Roberts. Oh. Have we ever covered her in a movie? You'd no. think one of the biggest actresses in Hollywood we would have gotten to Julia, but then I guess this is my first time saying I don't like Julia Roberts. That's not always been the case, and maybe one day when we get to Hook, you can re try to recall the time oh. when she got you to go see a movie. <laughs> well, I liked her in Pretty Woman. I still like her in Pretty Woman, and that's it. And I've seen her in a lot of stuff. There's a lot of movies I want to see that she ends up being in, but I pretty much find her unlikable and unwatchable. She is unlikable in this. I feel like she is the low point of this film. Like, with all these people with so much charisma, even Andy Garcia, who's the bad guy, there's something slick about him, and you, he's threatening. But her, she comes on screen to complain a lot, it seems. She's got a bad role, and she doesn't try to do much more with it. I just want to point out, she may be the biggest of all the stars at this point. She's coming off her Oscar win. She had just walked home with the gold for Aaron Brockovich, a big movie with critics and audiences. Uh, another bad film. I liked it. I didn't see what the big deal was, but it felt kind of like a gimmicky role, kind of like Sandra Bullock winning for The Blind Side, but whatever. Okay. She paid her dues. She got her statue. Here's the thing about Julia Roberts. Early on in her career, I did feel like she was light and bubbly, and even though things like Pretty Woman aren't movies I particularly like, I recognize she brought something to them. But something happened around Aaron Brockovich that broke her. 
And now whenever I see her, on red carpets particularly, she seems like the most unpleasant, unhappy person in all of Tinseltown. I'm honest to God, she looks like she would be rather anywhere else than standing in front of her public, which presumably still adores her. But she doesn't seem to like to be a star, and she always seems to be playing angry characters now. And and it starts here. Yeah, this is an angry woman, and I don't exactly know why. I get why the character is supposed to be angry with Dan. Danny, he goes to jail, she gets divorced, blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of people that are shady here, don't have pleasant stories. They do something with that role. Her, the way, either she's directed to do it this way, this is the way she interpreted it. It's so cold and prickly. Why does, Danny, do not risk your life. Do not risk going back to jail for this woman. No, this is the wrong motive. Yeah, I get that he would love her because she's Julia Roberts. And yeah. Yes, an amazingly huge movie star. Yeah. But- in a movie full of fun presences, including Andy Garcia, as you mentioned, Jacob, everybody there is just, I use the word charismatic. She doesn't have it. When I'm watching it this time and seeing it on the home theater, I'm looking and I'm like, wow, she didn't even bother putting on chapstick. She's got like either over collagen or chapped lips this whole time. And she's just <laughs> so fucking dour. I mean, she's chafing me the way the wind is chafing her lips. It's, it even seems with the lighting, like her face is just, it's never in the light. There's shadows on it. It's like, did they do this on purpose? I don't know what's going on, but yeah, they do everything they can to make her unlikable here. And she helps them too. Yeah, I don't think they did it to her. I think that she just projects that. Ever since Aaron Brockovich, she has nine chips on her shoulder and she just never seems to be the carefree hooker with a heart of gold again. And it's weird because she started her career being so popular and now I just feel like yeah, you just can't get the woman to smile. There were a lot of movies before Aaron Brockovich. She seemed to vacillate back and forth, but I think back to some of those, like, God forbid, Pelican Brief, Mary Riley. Pelican Brief, no, she was Julia Roberts. Mary Riley, you're on to something there. When she worked with Woody Allen, when she did that Liam Neeson Irish movie, yeah, there was a break in the mid-90s. When she wanted to be taken seriously, she never was funny again. But you know what? This time watching the movie, and this is probably my fifth or sixth, but I'm, of course, taking notes and paying very close attention to every beat of what's working and what's not. I see her as the flaw. I see her as the weakest link in this movie. But when I watched this before just for fun, she never did anything for me, but the movie itself is so light and bubbly that her dourness, I get it. She's the disapproving mother figure, right? Danny, you need to grow up. It's the same kind of relationship we saw from that last movie. The difference is here they're actually going to do something with it instead of like the last movie where they're going to have this big conversation. I mean, this table scene where Clooney gets to the dinner before Andy Garcia is almost a replay of the Sinatra one from last week. But here, this is setting up an actual motivation. He wants to get her back. And I do like the line that, you know, when Russ finds out, Tess can't be split 11 ways and gave me some ideas. Yeah, my mind went there, too. I'm glad I'm not the only one. It actually went there on the commentary. Brad Pitt has said if there's any woman he knows who can handle 12 guys, it's Julia Roberts. Oh, my. <laughs> 
Yeah, I did like that as a callback. And I think that's why Julia kind of works for me here. I get, you're right. She is the least fun of anybody on screen here. But if you remember, Angie Dickinson was a heartbroken character. And yeah, they didn't do anything with Frank Sinatra's wife back then. They introduced her. They gave her a couple scenes. Here she's integral to the plot. She's kind of caught between two liars. I mean, is Benedict a much better choice than a ex-convict? I mean, he is a mobster. He's just more successful, right? But he isn't any more of a legitimate man. I mean, George Clooney asked her, does he make you laugh? And she says, he doesn't make me cry. So my sense is that, you know, she's just glad that he's not going to jail. But he could. Is he a mobster or is he just... A Vegas businessman who uses ruthless tactics. I don't get that he has mafia connections. I don't get that he's organized crime so much as a businessman who will pay people to beat you up. Well, yeah, you don't need mafia in the new Vegas. It's all ruthless capitalists now that run it. Yeah. Worse than any mobster. Difficult to say. Uh, you know, you might be saying similar terminology with your variants there. I got the sense that he certainly was capable of any kind of violence we would see from any street hood. So even though he himself never has an Al Pacino moment and breaks things or, or goes crazy, I do get the sense that it's right beneath the surface and that maybe the problem is she's choosing the wrong guy if she wants the straight life. Yeah, he does use goons. And that's what I love about Andy Garcia, though, is it's always right underneath the surface, but he comes across that way. And I've just seen this guy time and again, and he's never really gotten the starring roles that I feel he could really handle, but he's just always an amazing, subtle presence there. And the way he glowers in this film. He's not always subtle, Godfather 3, but he can be great. Yeah, I really like him in this so much. And I do get that he's a bad guy. And it's good that he's a bad guy. Because remember, we talked about this last week. We're rooting for the criminals. They are thieves. They're going to rip this off. There's something that I think this movie does that's very subtle. And it's at that dinner with Julia Roberts. She tells Danny, when you rip off people, they have insurance companies to make them whole again. What you did to me, who's going to make me whole? Well, while she's expressing her hurt, she's also telling the audience, it's okay if they steal $160 million. The Bellagio's insured. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure the Bellagio wants to project that as well, because they're shooting at a real casino that just opened. They don't want to look weak to the entire world populace here. So, yes, they're they're also letting people know that are coming to Vegas to gamble. Bellagio's got you covered. Yeah, and I do like that at the end, this is less about insurance and more about Benedict's pride. You know, they're going to cut him a deal. Hey, you could secretly lose $80 million or publicly lose $160 million. You know, they're, they're trying to play up to, it's not just about the insurance covering it. I, I get it. It's a subtle hint to try to get us to go with the criminals. But I think they've done a good job making Benedict look like a jerk, and we don't want to root for him at all, even if it is stealing money and breaking the law. And keep in mind, that offer was never real. I know, but we don't know that until it plays out. The power of movie stars is that they can make us want to do anything with their charm. And so, yeah, it's not a problem for me to go with these guys ripping off Vegas, particularly when, yeah, Vegas has profited off ripping off other people. But they've got their work cut out for them. Even though I know that they have skills, what they're up against is very formidable. They got doors with changing codes. They got an elevator shaft with lasers that will detect them. It's motion control, fingerprint and voice activated elevators, the vault door, guys with Uzis. I mean, they really do make it sound pretty impossible. 
even for movie stars, to get through all of these chain of events. And that seemed like the trend, though. I remember, you know, it all started with Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, and then Charlie's Angels did a joke about it. I felt like that was the route you had to go. Make the most impossible thing. Even if it's like a Vegas heist film, you're still going to have this sci-fi-type vault you have to break into. It always seems like you got to move around the lasers thing. I think, yeah, Mission Impossible started it with that whole bungee cord dropping into the room. And then, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones had to do a whole kind of aerobics thing with Sean Connery to get through it in Entrapment. So this was, yeah, they're going to do one better here by having an elevator shaft that Clooney and Damon have to get down here. And the way to do it is they're going to cut the power. They still have that element. They still have the thing that Sammy Davis Jr. did, only now it's Don Cheadle and, uh, well, they call it a pinch. They come up late into the plot because they actually had the dynamite to blow up Ruben's casino. It's caused what the electricians to be working on a problem that Don Cheadle was counting on creating when they blew up that building Vegas lost power right because they'd accidentally done exactly what Cheadle was planning on doing that's right and so the city engineers are now like well crap let's fix this problem meaning Cheadle can't do what he needed to do so they have to go to Berkeley to steal an EMP and basically create a electromagnetic pulse to take out all electricity and he calls that a pinch yeah, yeah and they got to do that the next like they're doing the heist the next day that's quite a trip from vegas to berkeley yeah because the heist the most money is going to be in the vault on fight night and they have this incredible fight at the mgm grand that's why they can't do it on a tuesday or any day they've made it a very special day and so yeah it's compounded the problem now they have to add another heist to this and normally i might say this is just stretching or, or thinning it out. But again, I love what it does for the Matt Damon character because he does not listen. He's not one of them yet. He's told to stay in the van. He has no role in stealing the pinch. And because he can't stand Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck, he disobeys, goes inside, and puts the whole operation at risk. More than just the Matt Damon character having some reactions to the twins. I mean, that's kind of all that happens there. I was watching it. I'm like, what is the point of this entire scene? And I think the real thing that comes out of it is that Yen injures his hand because they have to escape. They actually leave Linus there, not realizing he's not in the van. He breaks out. They have to back the van up and he jumps on top. And then they speed away before closing the door. And Yen's hand gets caught and injured. And that's going to create problems later. I think that is... Plot-wise, what the scene is there to do. Although, overall, I'm not sure that any of these extra complications added a lot of entertainment or were really necessary. Yeah, the EMP, the pinch, as they call it, is a bit too far for me, but I'm just going with the party here. I'm having fun, so I'm not going to get too hung up on it. I do think this scene serves multiple purposes, trying to create some tension with Yen's hurt hand, trying to show there's still that distrust between Danny and Linus. It works. Again, I, I don't know if this is the best solution, getting this science fiction-like device, but I'm going with it. It actually exists, but it's much larger. You couldn't put it in a van. Yeah, I read something about this. Yeah, you would need a huge device to take out all of Vegas. I do love, though, that when he fires it, Don Cheadle covers his privates. <laughs> that was a nice, subtle touch. <laughs> but as far as the audience and Linus knows, Danny's now out of his own plot because he gets fingered. Benedict puts out that anytime he's in the casino, I should be on him. And so Russ leads a mutiny and... 
Clooney's out and Linus is going to do his job. But it turns out that's all part of the plot and they're just swindling us, the audience, as well as Linus just to see if he can be trusted because Clooney going into the casino and being taken by Benedict's guys all part of the plan. They've already paid off the goon who's going to beat him up. Like I said, I think that that's what gives that scene with the EMP an importance, is that at that point, Matt Damon didn't seem trustworthy. They need to make sure that if this is the guy that is going to be working with them, that he's going to give them the codes that allow them to get to where they need to. I don't think Clooney would have pulled this thing if Matt Damon hadn't shamed himself over in Berkeley. I think it's mo- all of this of him being fingered and being out of the plot is entirely motivated for that reason. It fooled me the first time I watched it. I didn't know how you could take a man out of his own plot, but it certainly seemed to be what had happened there. And that he's locked up, I mean, it creates the perfect alibi. Benedict doesn't know about anyone other than Ocean. Because of Tess, you've got to think he would know about Ocean one way or another. So it's really a way to remove all of that suspicion. And of course, Danny has paid off the guy that Benedict is going to send in there to beat him up. So always one step ahead. Yeah, again, I don't feel like it's too much of a cheat in these kind of heist films there's always a part of the plan the audience isn't told and there's a lot of the plan we're not told here we get something about turning off the power about going down an elevator shaft you know stealing codes but yeah most of this plot most of this plan we are not told they're going to try to fool us the only thing that feels like a weak link is when virgil and turk they're supposed to get this suitcase into the vault that we've established that Carl Reiner's character, he's pretending to be an arms dealer. He's having a package delivered and that Andy Garcia is personally going to see that this thing is brought to this very safe that they want to get inside and steal 160 million from. Somehow they get through that door and into that cage just by saying we forgot our pass key. That was the plan. They didn't get into the cage they just had someone else take it in there what i found a problem is that they go in dressed as like cooks and they got a serving tray they dump those uniforms in an elevator that seems pretty sloppy that could be found that's a hint when the real fbi shows up to invest this case i also just assume all elevators have cameras hence why you don't engage in oral copulation in them (laughs) can you do other kinds of copulation (laughs) since they have cameras it's just harder to do other kinds of copulation in elevators Okay. But it makes for great TMZ. So, you know, (laughs) yes, whenever we're going to look at practical applications, this movie is just believable enough. It's a whole lot more believable than glow-in-the-dark spray paint. Let me put it that way. What they kind of half-teased in the original movie has been thought out to a crazy plot that is fun to reveal and has, even when we think we know it going into this, there are elements that are surprising us all the way to the end. I mean, I when the arms dealer is falling over having a heart attack, I think it's for real. I didn't realize that it was a distraction so that they could switch out the cameras. Is that the only reason they need the briefcase to go to the safe is to create the heart attack distraction? Because no, that's how they smuggle explosives into the safe. Yeah, they couldn't just smuggle the explosives with the contortionist inside the giant thing. (laughs) Uh, Good point. I didn't think of it that way. (laughs) I mean, they've given him an air canister. He's in there and these explosives are so small, they look like four gems. And it creates an extra headache because they set that case right on top of the thing where Yen is 
trapped inside. So when Yen gets out, he has to make sure it doesn't hit the floor. So with all that combined, I just never this time understood why you had to have that briefcase. Yeah, it seems like the only reason is Linus, for a short time, he's going to be in an elevator he's not supposed to. They call it out. We got a bogey. And that's when Saul fakes this heart attack and they hurry and switch the video feed over so it's blank. But I I guess that's the reason they needed someone in that control room. And the easiest way to get someone in that room was to fake a case of jewels. It's convoluted. And a Russian mobster with a bad accent and two bad assistants because the (laughs) twins are his valets. But the worst thing in this movie that they left in and they should have cut Somebody recognizes Saul while he's pretending to be this Russian arms dealer. And he's like yelling, Saul, Saul. And this is happening in front of Benedict. And yet Benedict does nothing. He seems a little suspicious, but still takes the rubies to the vault. He tried to get Saul to store them just in the hotel safe. And, you know, Saul kind of laughs it off as where you put mother's pearls. And that's not safe enough for this. But I don't know why after that he would still go through and not just maybe tell Saul we're putting it in the real safe and then put it in the hotel safe. Well, he knows they're explosives, right? He knows this is an arms dealer. He probably wouldn't want to put explosives in, and, and put other things at risk. No, he, I thought they were just jewels. Yeah. They never say they were explosives. No, but I he knows he's an arms dealer, and they look like designer grenades. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were some kind of jewelry. I never got the sense that he thought they were a weapon. I don't think he would allow explosives in the vault with his 160 million. Yeah, good point. I, it was weird to me, but let's not obsess over this. It's a small detail, but your point is very valid. It's the moment that makes Andy Garcia's character look weak because he has the plot exposed. It's mostly gone off without a hitch, and these guys are pulling it off. But here is a ripple, much, I guess, like Adele in the last movie, someone that speaks out, exposes one of them. You would think that there would be repercussions, but Andy Garcia lets it all go by. And and you could just snip that few seconds and this movie would not change. Yeah, maybe that's the reason why when he's sitting at the fight and the power goes off, he instantly tells Julia Roberts, get your coat, we're getting out of there. It's just enough for him to think that something is really going wrong when a second weird thing happened. One guy recognizing someone that he knows as a Russian arms dealer is one thing, then to attend a fight where the power goes off. And I love the fact that just, I don't know how long it is. It's only, what, about 10 seconds or so, but it's enough to have like the fight go into chaos and people to try and rip off dealers at card tables. This is much more (laughs) realistic than what we saw in the 60s. Yeah, (laughs) such a change from 1960 here, where they just keep partying. Yeah, they're just singing all land sign again for the hundredth time. But the <laughs> fact of the matter is, is everyone would get a little bit corrupt. And yeah, they're Vegas. grabbing chips and running. Yeah, I, that cocktail waitress that gets like clotheslined is just painful to watch. Yeah, it is something. And I did enjoy this moment here. But I guess that's what it is. If if he hadn't had the Saul thing and it was just the power outage, maybe he wouldn't be triggered to think that something was really wrong. Well, there was a third part. I mean, they just keep distracting Andy Garcia because in between those two is when Matt Damon shows up pretending to be from the Nevada Gaming Commission and outs Frank as being a felon and who's under the fake name Ramon. 
dealing the cards. And that's Bernie Mac's standout scene, but it's yet another way to keep Benedict's focus away from where it should have been. Yeah, again, it's kind of surprising to see Bernie Mac factor so little into this. He was the first one they got, and yet we kind of forget about him towards the end, except I like him, so I don't forget. But yeah, it's a series of distractions. Maybe you're right. Maybe this is another thing that would stick in Andy Garcia's mind as things being off tonight. And of course, he's got George Clooney locked up. I mean, he's got a man that's literally the ex-husband of his fiance trying to push himself onto his woman. He knows that no good can come from the fact that Danny Ocean, ex-convict, has been hanging around his wife. So there's been a lot of tells for him to realize that there might be something amiss tonight and that his vault is in danger. Well, the biggest tell is probably when Brad Pitt calls him up and tells him he's being robbed. Well, yeah, at that point, it's not a surprise, <laughs> right? Uh, George Clooney slipped a secret phone into Julia Roberts' coat, and all of a sudden it's ringing, and yeah, the, now they're ready to tell Andy Garcia what's going on because they need him to get the money out. Is there one twist too many going on here for the audience? I mean, I love it. I love how these things unravel. I love that it was a fake vault and the SWAT team that went in was Russ and the guys. I in really enjoy it, but I wondered if you guys felt a little bamboozled by the way it all played out and how they got out of there and just lie upon lie upon lie. And we are Benedict at this point. Everything we believe is what Benedict believes until we're told that's not true. No, actually, the first time I saw this in theaters, I guessed what was going on. I'm like, oh, it's a fake video feed. They're the SWAT team. They're going to take it out with the SWAT. I actually figured out what the heist was as all this was unfolding. So I don't feel I was bamboozled because I I guessed it. I'm sure other people figured out what was going on, and they take their time to really explain it to you. Yes, I guessed half of it. I didn't recognize that the replica was anything more than a training ground, but I could tell that the SWAT team member's voice, the head of the team, he just sounded like Brad Pitt to me. So I thought I knew what was going on, but is it too much to process? Here's the honest truth. If you're having a good time, you don't have to work it all out. It's not like we need to hit pause every time we're confused and work <laughs> through the math, right? I mean, if I don't get something, but I was laughing the whole time and, and kept getting engaged, I will just assume that I missed a detail and applaud the movie for all that it did right. Is it too much when now that we're parsing out individual plots? Well, there's certainly things that stand out as more improbable than others. Yeah, there's things that I'm paying attention to, like, okay, we see when Yen is getting out of that case, he's got to be careful not to hit the sensors on the floor. I don't understand, does blowing up the vault deactivate the sensors? Why aren't those going off? There's little details like that, which I think they try to just move past, and we're not supposed to think about as this all unfolds. Yeah, you said you had an issue with the pinch, Jacob. I was okay with the pinch, knowing that EMPs exist. I had a problem with the remote control van. That was just the Come one on, that thing. was set up! That was uh, actually Chekhov's remote control. <laughs> it was Chekhov's remote control, but it's still that it could drive so well. And keep in mind, Chekhov's remote control got run over by a real car <laughs> in the first one here. I went with it, like Stuart said. If you're having a good time, you're going with it. I went with it, but when I sat back and parsed it out, it was like, oh, a little much. Maybe, but I just think that there are some characters that just don't have too much function to the actual heist. And yeah, Casey Affleck is one of them. It just, yeah, I had to give him a little detail to get him to stand out here. We saw him piloting the remote control monster truck. 
I actually like the Mormon twins. I think they do a lot. I think it's funny that they keep showing up. They they come in with balloons to create a distraction. They're waiters. They're trying to take money into the cage. They're security guards. It's every time they need a distraction, these two are there. I I, I thought they were played well. They're in the background though the whole time. They're not drawing your attention to them. Well, probably my least favorite characters in this whole plot. I I could have done without them. They seem here largely to yeah help facilitate things moving here to and fro. What I really liked during the whole plot, though, is as each person's piece completed, when Bernie Mac was outed, when Matt Damon was no longer having to play the guard, they all went and gathered around Livingston. Yeah, that was fun to see them come together like they were watching a sports game. Like, yeah, they were like into it. Are we going to get done? They're hanging on to it as much as the audience is. See, when you mentioned sports, my thinking is they're the runners who just crossed home. Now they're able to sit in the pen for a while and watch their teammates finish it out. But then they got to suit up and act like SWAT team members. I find it funny when they go <laughs> back and they show the heist being done. You have Saul there trying to rappel down this elevator shaft. <laughs> that is the best visual in this movie is seeing that old man try to yeah be a SWAT team member that was incredible yeah that's again though the play you think that they're done because they're all gathering together and just like having a good time and watching the events and then they're all out there in SWAT and when they really have their moment it's at the Bellagio Fountain they got away with it and that is a great moment I'll tell you I mentioned last time I went to Vegas for the first time this year that scene of that movie made me stay at the Bellagio. I stayed at the Bellagio my whole time, and the fountains were a must-see event for us, and I only knew about it thanks to Ocean's Eleven. See, for me, this seems like the tourist moment. I don't like this ending, where they got that music playing and swelling as they watched the fountain. I wanted something more dynamic. Hey, they would play Claire de Lune to that fountain music. That isn't music that's exterior to the action. They're literally hearing that song as they're watching the dancing fountain. Yeah, it's a tourist moment for me. I would want to probably get out of town. I like that they savored it, that they were standing outside the casino they just robbed and watching the fountains and taking their moments and just kind of drifting apart. It does feel like a callback to the 1961. They, you know, they all kind of just walk and separate at the end with the music playing after all that money's burned. I guess this is a more positive version of that. Yeah, they're all multimillionaires now. Yeah, the one twist that, well, we've already kind of prefaced by saying we don't even like the character, but the one that they try to make work here, Julia Roberts' conversion to want Danny again in her life, is a stretch by any means here. They, on closed-circuit television, are able to show her that Annie Garcia would trade her for $80 million. Who wouldn't? At her prime, she's not <laughs> worth $80 million in the picture. She should know better than anyone that Julia Roberts doesn't make $80 million a movie. At this point, it's 160 even. Yeah, that's true. You're right. For the full <laughs> amount. So what's her, what's her deal? I get it. That, yeah, that he would even barter, that love is this thing that you don't put a price on. Psh, whatever. Hey, she was only worth 5000 to Richard Gere in 89, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what she thinks she is, but she is indignant and tells Danny as he's being hauled off for six months of parole violation that she's going to be there for him now. And I don't know why that is. I guess if she had a more likability, I wouldn't care. But I think you're right onto something, Jacob, because she's been so sour and we never saw her not be sour. Is that what you want to see when you get out of the clinker? 
Well, you were just in there with a bunch of men. Who knows? Anything goes. Anything will work after that. But yeah, this is the weakest part of the film. I just, I don't care about this love story because I don't care about Tess. I don't want Danny to get with Tess. She seems like an awfully boring woman. Danny could do better. I like the repartee. I think another actress would make me like this ending, but I don't. My thinking is she realizes everything Danny did, he did to prove that he loved her and to make her love him. And it was the enormity of the act that he would go through so much and get so many people together to prove it made her realize that maybe he would make her a priority again. So he's also a multimillionaire. It wasn't yes. complete. <laughs> Does she know that? It's a little uncertain. I think she knows it at this point. I would think so. Come on. Why did she have a closed circuit TV in her room all of a sudden? Piece it together, woman. Benedict still has more. They stole him from him one night. And again, he is insured. So if it was about the money. But I agree with what you guys said about Julia Roberts this whole time. But for some reason, I don't know why. Maybe they gave her a drink before filming. But all of a sudden, the old Julia Roberts is back in the backseat of that car when he gets out of jail. All of a sudden, she is no longer Miss Sourpuss. I attribute that to the lines. I love the fact that, you know, she complained he was a thief and a liar. And now she's the liar because she didn't throw away her wedding ring. This is good stuff. Another actress could really make this moment sing in a way that your heart just would go to it. I'm glad Clooney is happy, but I wouldn't be satisfied with this deal. And... Garcia hasn't given up. His two goons are following them. Is this going to be related to the sequel? I have no idea what comes next. Is this directly tied? I assume Andy Garcia is coming back? Andy Garcia is coming back. Here's what they said on the commentary, is that they weren't planning a sequel, but they felt like it was too clean for them to get away without Garcia still having them under some sort of surveillance. So that wasn't put there to lead into the sequel. But when they decided they were going to make a sequel, hey, they already had their lead in. Ah, well. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Ocean's Eleven? Jacob. Again, this feels like a party. we got a great gang coming together. It's an effective gang. There's 11 people here, just like that last film last week, but I know who they all are. There's something to say about simplicity. Instead of doing this big improv mishmash where it's unclear what characters are, I get that they're having fun and they're riffing and they're improving here, but, you know, I, I got... Clooney and Pitt, they're the leaders. I got the electrician. I got the grease man. I got the two transport guys. I got, you know, this is just so much more accessible knowing who's doing what. And then it's also funny on top of that. They're having a great time. Great one-liners, you know. Are you scared? Are you suicidal? Only in the morning. I, I, there's just so many great lines here that I think will, I don't know, maybe if now playing still around in 50 years, we could come back to see if it holds up. But I think the comedy here is going to hold up because it's just great witty one-liners delivered well, except, you know, for Julia Roberts. I, I really think that's the one downer here. But even all the implausibilities with the plot and the heist, this EMP and some of the mechanics, I'm willing to overlook all that because I'm having a good time. This is a film like you, Arnie. I've probably seen this five or six times when I'm going through cable and it's on, I'll sit down and watch it because, yeah, I, I get a laugh out of it. So, yeah, recommend Ocean's Eleven. Stuart. And for me, this is a revelation. I mean, I wrote these movies off as Soderbergh getting a paycheck so he could do his weird little experiments like the limey or bubble, you know, the stuff that like nobody would see. That was the stuff I was really excited for. The good German. These, this was the Soderbergh that I loved and Oceans was just the 
paycheck that he had to turn in to to keep making the experiments. But you know what? That is dismissing a really classy, exquisitely made entertainment. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the fact that this is just a light confection. Hell, it's hard to make a souffle. You ever tried? It's nearly impossible to get that son of a bitch to rise. And this movie soars. It is fun start to finish. And I loved it. I, I'm at the risk of actually overpraising this movie, perhaps. But it's a very strong recommend. I couldn't believe how entertaining it was and how unexpectedly it snuck up and really surprised me with how smart and fun and classy it really was. I'm really looking forward to the sequels. I have no idea what they are. But hell, I almost recommended the first movie, and they've got to be better than those. And three for three on recommends. I'll tell you a story. I said I went to this on opening weekend, and I was excited for this movie, but I almost didn't go. On the way to the theater, I got a phone call and ended up in a bad personal situation. I was in a bad mood. I'm like, do I even want to watch a movie right now, or do I just want to go home and be angry and pissed off? And Marjorie was with me. She's like, let's just go see the movie. It does no good to go home and be pissed off. So I'm like, all right, I might as well be pissed off in a movie theater instead of pissed off at home. And this movie was so much fun that it turned my mood completely around and repaired what could have been a shitty day. I walked out of there and felt perfectly fine and just completely washed away the troubles I had going in. There's very few movies that can transcend going in in a horribly pissy mood in the first place. This movie pulled it off. It's because of the actors they got, the lines, just the snappishness of the dialogue. It really does feel old school with a bunch of known faces giving great performances. None of the actors here get better. They may have done great work, but here they are all at the top of their game, bringing everything they have to this role. This, as you say, this light, fluffy movie, Stuart. So when I watched it this time for now playing, I was surprised that I was finding a few things because I have to go into a 90-minute discussion about it, so I have to pay attention to the details. And I'm like, oh, Julia, not so much. And, oh, okay, that plot point doesn't really need to be there. But yeah, when I was watching this the multiple times I've seen it and just enjoying the movie, I fully enjoy this movie. I give it a very strong recommend. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the power of good entertainment. There's nothing wrong with something that makes you feel good at the end of it. And this, I feel great watching this movie. And if you also want to feel great, you can help support independent podcasting with a donation. It is the season of giving, and we've given a lot. We've given 16 shows for Platinum Donors. If you want everything that we've got to offer, if you can give us $30 in the next two weeks... We are going to provide you with all of our fall shows. That is the Silver Level Lord of the Rings. All these shows are out right now. Everything from Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, Return of the King, to all three Hobbit movies, including the new one that just came out. And also the Gold Level, Me Gold Leprechaun. Lest we forget, I will never be seeing another one again. I'm quite sure there'll be no more sequels. So after the vault door closes on this, George Clooney and his team are are not going to be able to extract my thoughts on Leprechaun. It is over. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for all the people who have donated. It's donations that get us to do extra shows like last week's review of Willow. Yeah, who saw that coming? Lord of the Rings and Leprechaun together <laughs> in one crazy movie. 
<laughs> Got my chocolate in your peanut butter, did you? <laughs> yeah, let's hope that doesn't happen again. And so you can find out all the details on how to donate, support now playing, so we can have as big of a 2015 as we had 2014. We do it thanks to you donors, but we say thank you with these donation podcasts. So I said this during the Maniac podcast, but in the chance that the Ocean's Eleven audience isn't the same as the Maniac audience, (laughs) uh, let me say this again. I don't think that it's really driven home that we need your donations. We need you if we are going to keep doing the show we do every Tuesday. I've heard from people who are like, meh, Leprechaun doesn't interest me, so I'm not going to donate to your show. Well, if Ocean's Eleven interests you, if this whole Ocean series, if Children of the Corn or any of the Stephen King, I guess I should have picked a better one. Yeah, you're all right. The Shining. If any of the Stephen King stuff interests you, if the Avengers movies interest you, if you want to hear us keep going, we need your donation, irrespective of if you want to hear Leprechaun or Lord of the Rings. We've talked about what do we give to thank people who support our show? What can we do for them? And we've sat around and said, what if we did a water bottle? What if we did a t-shirt? It would be a hell of a lot less work on us because each of these shows we do takes over 40 man hours to make, counting all the time the three of us do watching, re-watching, watching with commentaries, watching bonus features, reading articles and old interviews, and then the editors who spend hours and hours listening and re-listening to the shows, just the actual posting of the shows, the website design, a lot of time and work goes into these shows and we can't do it without your support. So please, if you enjoy Now Playing, if you want Now Playing to continue, we need your support. We decided we're not going to do a t-shirt. We're not going to do a coffee mug. We're going to put in these hours. We're going to say thank you with extra reviews that are made available only for a limited time for the people who donate during this period. But we're not selling these podcasts. These truly are a thank you. And we do hope that if Leprechaun's not your thing, but Ocean's Eleven is, and Fast and Furious that we announced for next year, and all kinds of stuff is, that you will donate to help us keep going. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your support. And with that, it's time for a little less conversation, a little more action. Now... I have complied with your every request. Would you agree? I would. Good, because now I have one of my own. Run and hide, asshole. Run and hide. If you should be picked up next week buying a $100,000 sports car in Newport Beach, I am going to be supremely disappointed because I want my people to find you. And when they do, rest assured, we're not going to hand you over to the police. So. My advice to you again is this, run and hide. That is all that I ask. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. This is just the best part of my day. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. It's fun time, Jimmy boy. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archive, you can find reviews of other films, such as all the James Bond films, The Avengers, RoboCop, Rambo, Die Hard, Saw, and hundreds more. What, did you guys get a group rate or something? 
while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this movie review with other listeners. They told me to come see you. Oh, did they? Well, I'm sure glad they did. They did. That's what they told me. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. I almost, I almost wasn't going to come over and say anything. Then I'd still be sleeping. And please remember, your support is what keeps Now Playing operating. Our fall 2014 pledge drive is coming to a close. Support independent podcasting and get exclusive, bonus, Lord of the Rings or Leprechaun movie reviews. Even when we aren't running a pledge drive, you can donate using the PayPal button at our website all year round. Find the PayPal button as well as all the details at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'd have to pay you by check. Let's, or we could just stick to cash. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's just stick to cash. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. That guy's a machine. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Been practicing the speech a little bit, did I rush it? Felt like I rushed it. was good, I liked it. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Studios. The Ocean's films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This town, your luck can change just that quickly. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. I love technology, because to look at you, I'd swear you were being evasive, but the machine says you're clean. I'm just a little nervous. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'll turn that off, will you? I'll turn it off when I'm ready to turn it off. It's off, it's off. Gould, Eddie Jameson, Andy Garcia. (laughs) Shabo Quinn, you didn't want to say that one? (laughs) Shabo, I don't know. (laughs) So they get Bashir Tar, played by Don Cheadle. Basher, you mean? Yeah. (laughs) He's not Bashir. Yeah, yeah, that accent is as bad as his. (laughs) Keep in mind, 2001, we'd come off the Matrix two years earlier with cool leather-clad hackers. We'd had the movie Hackers a few years before that. Nothing cool about that. Well, there are, but we'll <laughs> never discuss. <laughs> we'll just table that conversation for another time. We still have never done a Jolie movie, right? I'm trying to think. She just doesn't do anything we ever want to watch. Um, her only franchise is that Tomb horrible Raider. Uh, Tomb, Raider. Tomb Raider. Yeah. Um, Which they are rebooting. Uh. <laughs>
Well, there we go. Yeah. We have to do that. I'm looking. I'm like... Wanted? Isn't that a comic book? Isn't that it one is. that yeah. we don't ever have to cover? Is it, isn't it DC? No, it's Image. Oh, so no. Oh. All right. Well, I guess... Uh, that, they're supposed to be doing a sequel. They've been talking about it forever. So potential franchises, mm-hmm. but yeah. Malficence will end up doing that <laughs> retrospective. <laughs> Alone? I ain't doing that shit. <laughs> What did I have to say about that? (laughs) (laughs) He's not always subtle. Godfather 3, but he can be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, true. There is that, but there's bigger problems with that movie. Maybe someday we'll discuss that. We'll add it. I would love to discuss that. Well, we'll pair that with hackers sometime. Clooney had already done it with Out of Sight. Yeah. Oh, was that in there? Yeah, because remember J-Lo's ass? I remember Catherine Zeta-Jones' ass in, in Trap. Oh, that's right. Maybe I'm thinking of that. I thought J-Lo's ass had to go through some... All right. Well, maybe... I think that. you're just thinking about J-Lo's ass because, well, what else is there to think about with J-Lo? <laughs> <laughs> Hell, it's hard to make a souffle. You ever tried? It's nearly impossible to get that son of a bitch to rise. We all saw steel. Oh, right. That's right. There were some some kind of... What was in that souffle? (laughs) I don't know, but I literally... All I remember is the souffle from that film. Yeah, yeah. She mixed in something like fried chicken that was... You just don't do that. But anyway, my point is... 